Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 55 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They lead retreats in some of the most inspiring destinations in the world, Cape Town, Barcelona, Bali, just to name a few. I did uh, Medellin in Colombia with them last year, and it was everything I could have imagined. Beautiful apartment, great co-working space, incredible community, and you get to be a part of their global community that they've created, and lots of incredible local connections connections and experiences. Go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan and they're going to give you $100 off. So do yourself a favor, beunsettled.co slash Nathan and prepare for one of the best months of your life. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you as always for listening, tuning in, talking about the show, sharing it, commenting on my Facebook page and on my Facebook profile every time there's a new episode posted. I read all the comments and I just appreciate it. And uh, it's nice to know that the show makes a little bit of a difference in your life and that you get something out of it. So thank you for continuing to interact and share the show around and listen. It really means a lot to me. This week, if you follow me on Instagram.com slash Nathan Seward, you'll see nothing but a stream of beaches and sunsets <laughs> because I've just been uh, going up and down the Pacific coast of Costa Rica, checking out nice beaches, and meeting lots of cool people and just having a good time. It's been really, really fun here. And continuing to do amazing work with my clients, uh, developing this incredible community. What I'm starting to realize is that what I really love to do is help people build game-changing businesses. And not just you know changing games and changing industries for the sake of it, but really businesses that are actually trying to improve things in the world. What's important to me, as most of you know, is helping people to heal, uh, to express themselves, to become the fullest version of themselves. So for me, a game-changing company is any company or business that can do that, that can help people become better versions of their self. And also anything that's helping the planet. So those are the two big things that I'm really passionate about is making our planet more sustainable and helping people to improve. So that's going to be my focus uh, over the next wee while is continuing to grow my community of entrepreneurs We've got now, I think, 15 entrepreneurs in our tight-knit community, and they just all support each other and get coached and ask for help. It's just awesome, and it's so inspiring. I just, you know, what I want you to know is there's a bunch of really great people out there that I get to work with that are individually taking on challenges that are helping our world grow. And it's incredibly, incredibly exciting when you see what these people are up to, there's one of my clients is building a business that helps people be more intentional about their travel. So when they travel, how to get more transformation out of their travel. There's other clients, co-founders that are building a business that are going to help people get over their speaking anxiety so that they can learn to express themselves and tell their story and be more fulfilled that way through speaking on stages. And yeah, just amazing, amazing people. And I'd love you to be a part of it. If you want to do that, if you have a game-changing idea, if you want to get into business to help solve some of the world's problems, reach out to me. Let's have a conversation. Let's see if we can come up with an awesome idea or mission or brainstorm, play around with it, and uh, see if we can come up with something that inspires you and that uh, you may want to turn into a business. Reach out to me and we can figure that out. But onto the podcast. This month it's Love and Connection Month and I'm really enjoying it because I think for entrepreneurs and coaches, all the people that listen to this podcast, you're the type of people that want to 
improve and have the best experience, the richest experience in all aspects of your life. And so diving into love and connection is uh, one of those areas. And this week I got to talk to Kendra Kunoff. Kendra's a good friend of mine. And this is her life's work. She grew up in a monastery. Her parents were living in a monastery when she was born. And she's just been around this kind of work for a long time. She now dedicated her life to teaching about intimacy and relationships. And I had so many questions for Kendra around masculine and feminine energy and why that's important and how it works. And I asked her, what do women want men to know? And what does she think men want women to know? She gave some really interesting answers. A little bit different this week, I recorded this uh, conversation on Facebook Live because I want to try that out and see what it's like to have people interacting. So you'll hear me talking about people making comments and speaking to the, uh, the audience on Facebook. So it may sound a little bit different to normal. But enough about me talky-talky and more about Kendra having a conversation. So enjoy this very personal conversation with powerful Kendra Trudeau. So, yeah, this month, my theme for the podcast and just on Facebook and everything is love and connection. And so Monica came on at the start of the month and just talked about sex and relating in that way. And it was very embarrassing for me. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, Leanne came on the show last week and just talked about relationship with James and after he passed what she's learned about love through the the eyes of death and passing and how it's really deepened her understanding of love Mm. and yeah now I'm excited to have you on here and just uh, to really talk about you and your life because this is your life you know Mm. from what I can tell is relating connection masculine feminine everything you do so yeah super excited to have you on so welcome thank you yeah I'm excited too Cool. And it's an excuse for me just to hang out with you. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I feel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Have some so, interesting conversation while people watch. <laughs> with a whole lot of people watching, yeah. It's weird, isn't it? <sighs> it's a weird world we live in. Yeah. So uh, I don't know that much about, you know, where you came from, your upbringing and what brought you to this work. So perhaps you could give us some of the highlights of what brings us to this wonderful Kendra today. Mm, thank you. I was just talking to someone the other day and I, I remembered something that I, I just hadn't thought of in a very long time that I think was kind of a pivotal moment for me. It was interesting. Now suddenly I just jump back to another point. So I was raised in a Buddhist monastery and I lived there in, in my early years without going into like a super lot of detail about that, but it's here in the States. It's in California. And when I was like 18, or 19. It was my first year of college. Uh, and I was still dating my high school boyfriend that I'd had. And he broke up with me. And I was like, devastated. And in that moment, I was already, frankly, like not thrilled about being in college. <laughs> I was kind of miserable. Everybody looked like they were having fun. But I don't know. But I just was like, Oh, my God, what's going on here? I don't really understand. And so there was something about the end of that relationship that I think some other people, if they, they might've gone home to their parents' home. And for me, I went to the monastery because I think that felt like it was inside me. It was, I need to go home. And that's where I went. And then when I was there, so I lived there for about three years. It's a pretty formal monastery. So it closes down in the winter time and 
we meditate for hours and hours and there's lots of silence and all the forms and the bells and the chanting and what have you. So people don't come there unless they really want to focus on themselves in some way. Like that, nobody's going to come and do something like that unless they're, you know, struggling in some way. Want to like, yeah, you know, committed. I would, I would call it like committed to awakening or their own Mm. personal growth or like there's some, something, however they would describe it. But there was this moment after I'd been there for a year, year and a half or something like that. And I remember looking around me and having this thought like, wow, there's this community of people who are all really committed, their personal growth or awakening, whatever you want to call it. And we still have all these weird interpersonal dynamics. And even though we're doing this very intensive solo practice for hours and hours a day, we're kind of not talking about this other stuff. And I remember thinking very clearly, like, what is that? I didn't have an answer at the time. I mean, I was like 19 years old, but it really drove my inquiry. And I think ultimately when I left the monastery and I I followed a man and I moved to San Francisco and he kind of introduced me to a lot of other things that are more direct influences on the work I do. But that was the driving force in some way. It was like, what is this thing? And it doesn't necessarily get addressed by deep solo spiritual practice. Well, like the traditional monastery is, you would be celibate, right? Right. So does that mean it kind of eliminates the need for that kind of deep understanding of, say, a monogamous relationship? Well, it certainly might. I mean, I was going to then jump, and this is interesting, and I was like, well, and it's usually same gender. But of course... I mean, what does that mean? It means nothing, right? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But I think probably traditionally, at least in some explicit context, yes, like no sex and celibacy and solo gender, like sort of meant like, okay, great. We just took that off the table. Yeah. (laughs) Which isn't true. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I don't really know what happened in like old time monasteries. Like, I don't know if it was... Old-timey, old-timey monasteries. You know, uh, unspoken about sex or like, I don't know. But this monastery is co-ed and also isn't, uh, I mean, they have some very explicit guidelines around this or something, but also there were families there. I mean, I grew up there as a child and people did Mm. get in relationships and they got married. And But it was also, it was certainly like the intimacy piece, but it was also just like, oh, there's like so-and-so who does this weird thing and nobody talks about it. And it's not even an intimacy thing. It's just relational. <laughs> and what about your your parents? What drove them to get into it in the first place? And are they, are they still in that kind of work? I mean, that's a good question. I don't know if I could really answer what drove them necessarily. And I think both of them would consider themselves Buddhists. And neither of them lives at the monastery anymore. Right. Yeah. And is there any memories that stick out from your early years? Or is it too early um, yeah, well, I would say actually like my earliest memory, <laughs> this is a total kind of left turn tangent, but my earliest memory is actually, so the, the head of the monastery when I was a child was named Richard Baker. And he was called Baker Roshi because Roshi is the name of the teacher. And my earliest memory is that I, I must've been like three years old and I was like peeing in the garden in the main area, like in the middle of <laughs> the middle of the community And I don't remember it as being reprimanded. Like it wasn't like I'd been super naughty, but I knew it wasn't right. And one of my earliest memories is of him picking me up and removing me from peeing in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> the monastery. That's so funny. Yeah. That wasn't part of the practice, public urination. No, apparently not. <laughs> and so what did you learn? So when you went back the second time, how long were you there when you were a child? We lived within the community until I was six. We lived like really in the monastery until I was about four. And then we lived a little bit outside, but within the community until I was about six. Mm. Um, I spent a lot of my teenage years kind of in and out. And then I went back when I was about 19 and lived for three years. Um, did, the, did the practices, was there a lot of, even as a kid, were there a lot of meditation practices and everything that were encouraged? No, we were really included in a lot of the celebrations. Right. So like Buddha's birthday is considered, it's like this, there's a whole parade and we throw flowers and you get to bathe little baby Buddha. And they kind of created things also around us. Like I remember Halloween at Tassajara and like one man did a whole uh, shadow puppet show and when someone was up in a tree and like, I don't really remember the trick or treating at all. I just remember the whole experience. So it, it got incorporated in, but we didn't really have like Sunday school for Buddhists or anything yeah. like that, like for the kids. Yeah, that's interesting. It's just a little bit different. Yeah. It, at yeah. least in that, in that context, that was my experience. That's cool. And so what did you learn? So when you go back into the monastery, you know, at 19, 20, and then you decide to leave to mm -hmm. explore more about relating. Mm -hmm. Where does that take you? Well, the relationship that I left to follow sort of took me immediately into a community in San Francisco. It wasn't so much like commune living per se, although we lived in a group house, but there was like this, they actually called themselves the community, but it was like an underground dance scene. And there was a lot of people were involved in different kind of personal growth, like things out of which also sprang this organization called Arate that I, I then met my husband through and like we created an organization called Authentic World and that boyfriend that I left the monastery to be with, like he first introduced me to Marshall Rosenberg and nonviolent communication, um, to David Data and that sort of realm to thinking of like other things, but there were, but that was, that was like his world. Even though I was in a community that was kind of on the hippie side and like, like that was kind of who gravitated towards Buddhism in those, like in the West. Anyway, it was right. like the realm of personal growth. I wasn't really aware of it as a thing until I left. And yeah, and then that partner kind of like introduced me to these things or I went to workshops or like, and I think that then that had a real trajectory. So it was just a lifestyle up until then. It wasn't actually a growth community. Or I growth. think about too, I was kind of catching myself because I was like, well, is that true? Like I remember reading about the Enneagram when I was 16 and I got super into the Enneagram. So it was like, but there wasn't a culture of the way we think of like personal growth. Mm. I didn't really have that until I moved to San Francisco when I was like 21 or something. Yeah, interesting. One thing that I find fascinating about you, and it's so I'm kind of asking all these questions, is that I've only been in personal development, you know, officially for a couple of years, like three or four years. And before that, I was just out in the world, not growing up in monasteries and not in happy communities. <laughs> yeah. I was still pretending to be normal. Yeah, it's just fascinating to me how that's guided your path into the work and how you've, because you've really found your own space in personal development. You've really carved out where your gifts are, where your genius is. I think it's amazing. So it's really interesting to me how you got here. Mm, yeah, th I mean, thank you for that reflection. And I, I, I went on a date one time where I remember the man telling me, now I can't remember, maybe it was 
like the people's history of the United States or something. So it wasn't even like a personal growth, but he, he read it and it was such a different perspective than he'd ever heard before that it changed his life. It like opened him up that things existed that he didn't know existed. And he kind of changed his life completely. And I remember thinking like, that is incredible. Cause I sort of, and so hearing your story, like part of me is like, well, that's amazing. Like that's amazing to actually change from being quote unquote normal. Cause there were a lot of years where I really, like I wished I'd been given the opportunity to be normal. Like mm. I kind of railed internally against like, ah, oh, like I wish I could just be normal. I wish I could not think this way. I wish I could. What was the friction? What were you fighting? What was the part that you were fighting in this into a therapy I, I session? <laughs> I didn't really want to be that aware of myself. Right. Like there's, I was just like, God damn it. Like I don't really want, I don't want to see these things. Yeah. Cause this world does force you to constantly look in the mirror all day, every day. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're gonna do it, it is. Yeah. So how do you find ways to not be that? Do you have times where you specifically don't want to go through any growth or don't want to go through any reflection or is this just part of who you are? Um, I think at this point it's more like I've broadened my perspective on what that means. And so I no longer really feel like I'm fighting it, mm. but I also don't really have the sense like, oh my God, I need to be like having an insight or I need it to be like growing or there's something wrong with me or this is, if I see this, it means it's a problem. And I think this has really informed also the way that I work and probably in some way it's because it's been a struggle for myself, but it's like the feeling that I want people to have and this is a feeling I want myself to have it's like I want to feel more and more like I belong exactly where I am as exactly who I am. Like I want that for people. I want people to like more and more actually feel like, oh, this particular being that got born on the earth like belongs exactly here, exactly like this. Mm, I belong exactly where I am exactly as I am. Yeah. And I kind of think there's like an, in, there's an innate growth that comes with that. Like if I'm really willing to be here, like that, that piece occurs. Yeah. Because from that place, I feel that any growth is because you want to, not because you feel broken. Right. I have to improve in order to, you know, I mean, love and relationship, right? Like to have the love and belonging that I want (laughs) yeah yeah that's right where does I mean I believe it all starts with self-love so what does self-love mean to you so I think I believe that I agree with that but also that there's like some sort of dance like they just don't exist separately there isn't really something different from self-love and other love And there's kind of this whole, I was looking at this, there's like some meme that went around. And I think most people are aware of like... That's the truth. Truth always comes in the form of a meme. It's always (laughs) in a meme. We know it's, we know that's (laughs) like totally truth. But it was like nine different kinds of love. Like there's usually these three that are about, and one is like agape and amora. I don't know, there's like the sexual love and the friendship love and the Mm. something love that are more talked about. There were like nine. And I can't now remember what they are, but I, 
to me, it made sense because it's kind of like, well, there's like universal love and there's platonic love and then there's like romantic or sexual love and there's kind of like love of God and there's self-love. And, and I actually, I believe that there's a value in teasing those apart. And I believe that they actually all happen together. Like we're like some weird stool that's falling over if we're like, no, it's all about this or it's all about this or I have to, you know, then we just become like a wonky table or so self-love to me is, this is kind of where that relational part comes in is, is that there is that sense of what I said, which is like, oh, I really like this, this, I belong here. And some, there's some resting into that. But at the same time, if I can't if I can't receive the impact that I'm having on you, like let's say I do something and it really pisses you off and you're mad at me. And in order to love myself, I have to be like, well, that's yours. And I'm not responsible for your feelings. Because if I have, like, if I can't be like, oh, I hurt you. Or, or you're, you're like, I said something, you got mad. And I can't stay kind of whole and still receive that. Then I think there's places to look at with self-love still. Mm. so that like to me that's that weave right or if I'm like oh my god I hurt you like I'm I'm so sorry I did something wrong and I'll never do that again like those are that you know that sort of posture and collapse and there's something in the middle that's like wow I I still belong I'm still actually whole and complete and I'm okay but it matters to me that I did something that would make you that mad and it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily bad and wrong and a horrible person and I have to you know crawl on my knees for the rest of my life yeah, it reminds me of something Adam Quiney said and probably got it from you or, or John maybe, I don't know. But uh, it talks about when you're fully self-expressed, you're going to hurt some people. And it's much better to be fully self-expressed and risk making a mess mm-hmm. and then cleaning that up mm-hmm. than not being expressed at all. So it just kind of reminded me of that. That self-love is like, okay, I choose that You know, I belong here. I'm going to put out whatever I put out. And I may create a mess in the process, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that I don't belong or that I'm bad or I'm wrong or there's some part of me that's unlovable. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love the distinction that Adam made, which is, you know, be available to, you know, he was talking about sort of clean, cleaning up the mess. And the way that I was talking about it was like, be available for the impact. Because mm. it's both. It's the willingness to be fully expressed and how often actually we blame other people for our lack of self-expression because we're unwilling to be with the impact. So I could say like, well, I can't share, you know, this, that, and the other because, you know, Nathan can't handle it and he'll get upset. And so therefore I have to be, I have to repress myself. (laughs) And people usually, Mm -hmm. right, they don't really say this quite so explicitly, but that's how people walk around in the world. It's like, I can't do this because you, Mm. for some reason. And that's basically me saying, I'm unwilling to be with the impact that I might have on you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, this is the nice guy syndrome, right? Like, in essence, this is what Robert Glover yeah. talks about, that being nice is only to protect yourself. Yes, yes. So stop you. And when we say, like, oh, I'm doing it for you, but you're not. Or yeah. just so that you don't feel like a dick. That's why. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the official official line in the book. Official tagline. <laughs> Gary just made a comment, and he said that uh, love, pulls whatever it touches towards its highest potential and that your life is amazing based on your history and being surrounded so young by love in the way that you were. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent especially the last several years 
in some way really contemplating this piece of um it's kind of like honoring the gifts that I was given. Yeah. There's this way I'm like, man, that's just grace. It's like grace. And then, you know, I mean, when we left the monastery, I lived with a single mom in like a, a one room trailer in the middle of the woods, which also had blessings, but we had no electricity. Like I had no indoor toilet. And my mom was super stressed because we had no money. And she was trying to go back to school and become a teacher, you know, and like, and, uh, and the people out there were kind of weird, you know, cause that's how, like when you get out in places like that, like they're either great or they're really weird. And so there were also those pieces of my life. Like I would notice kind of my pull towards one or the other. Like, this is my story. No, this is my story. No, this is my story. And I was like, actually, that's all my story. And how do I actually hold all that? Like, how do I hold being raised by a single mom on no money and like her pain and stress around that and living in a place where sometimes people were just shooting guns off and it was really scary, but also hold that I was in a community of people with all their own issues, but who ultimately came to a monastery to like meet their issues. Mm. Like I have to hold the complexity of my life. But like, I think we all do. I don't think I necessarily have okay. a more complex life than anybody else. <laughs> Just weirder. Well, it's certainly unique. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. unique. <laughs> oh, weird. Yeah. Uh, I, I resonate with this because my in my childhood, I grew up around a lot of wealth in some parts of my family and a lot of, well, I guess, poverty in other parts of my family. And I was always pulled between them because of all the different opinions people have about what does it mean to be wealthy and what does it mean to be poor. Mm-hmm. and the distinction I would make is the difference between not fitting in anywhere mm. compared to belonging everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's what I sort of still, I still try to process because I always felt that I didn't fit in anywhere. And I guess like being gay and there's other things that contribute to that. But the flip side of the coin is just as convincing and powerful that actually you can fit in and belong anywhere. It's just a way to look at it. Really is, you know, Karen Baker from 4PC, she said that it was like, I can't remember what the piece was, but as we went around, she, the piece she put in was, I belong in every room I'm in. And really, I was like, what would be like to just like walk through the world? I mean, it's kind of what I'm saying, but like this different angle on it, but this thing of like, no, I literally belong here Mm. because I'm here. Like, how could I not? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's a protection of some kind to think that you're not, you don't belong. Um, Lisa says, hold the complexity of my life. She loves that that mm. quote, really be with the complexity of your life. So if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Kendra, and we're just talking about Kendra's life, really. Kendra grew up in a monastery for the first five years of her life and just pulling that apart and exploring how that's led her to, to your work right now. And... How do you describe your work now? Like, what do you call yourself if, if someone asks you what you do? Gosh, that's a great question. I think I'll often say I, I teach. It's sort of the easiest way, like, access. Someone just says, like, what do you do? Although I was talking to somebody who was sort of in that, that angsty place that we sometimes see people were like, oh, my God, I don't want to call myself a life coach because blah, blah, blah. And I'm telling her that one of my, like, one of my spiritual teachers who I think is such an extraordinary woman. I I heard her just so casually say like, yeah, and I'm a life coach and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, man, she had not a thing about that. Like maybe I could let go of whatever thing. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. 
surprising how much that comes up. Yeah. So I, um, I mean, maybe just, I don't know what the, what the thing would be, but, but I work with people and especially in that co-ed setting, I'm mostly working with people around relationship and intimacy. And then I also lead groups where I work primarily with women. And for me, that includes the relationship and intimacy piece, but it's really this, um, really more about that piece we were talking about of like belonging like what are the looking at any disowned parts of ourselves and looking at like the full range really of what it is to be a woman in this day and age and you mentioned at the very beginning kind of this piece of like masculine and feminine and I know there's other people out there that do this but I like do think I'm one of the few women teachers like who's teaching women's work who's really teaching women both masculine and feminine embodiment practice because I deeply deeply value both and it's the foundation of my own life so I don't know how I could do anything else (laughs) it's brilliant let's pull that apart because you know masculine and feminine embodiment practice may sound like Chinese to some people right yeah (laughs) Um, so one part you know when you talk about embodiment a lot of your work is literally physically doing exercises either on your own or with a partner and that was something that I'd never experienced before and it's a little bit confronting right mm-hmm. like uh <laughs> I read on your Facebook the other day you had some feedback that said okay, what was the comment somebody said it was like the most horrible wonderful thing they'd ever done <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, exactly <laughs> yeah so you know you're doing something I mean it's so unique that's I love it so yeah, there's, you call it embodiment practice. So the, the, a lot of the work you do is, is physical. And masculine and feminine. So how do you explain that to people? So am I wrong yeah. when I say man and woman? Um, I would just say it's a subtler distinction. So I would say there's that, I would say it's more universal, right? Like, and, and there's probably other people would say yin and yang or try to find other language for whatever reason. Maybe it's like our own fascination with like man and woman that, it seems like we keep getting caught in that no matter what language we use. So Mm. I use the words masculine and feminine on purpose because I actually very much want to distinguish that from male and female. And, uh, and also, I mean, it's male and female, but then when we get in the realm of relationship and intimacy, it also people start to get it into like sexual orientation. And so those are all distinct. Mm. And, I would say one way to talk about masculine and feminine in a very basic way would be to say that the masculine is the structure or the container. And the feminine, a lot of times when John and I teach, John's another teacher of John Wineland that I teach with, um, but we'll talk about like structure and flow or um, structure and energy or container and energy. And one very common example is like a river. And so the banks of the river would be the masculine. The river itself would be the feminine. How else would I talk about this? So I think of, you know, sometimes there's these very basic examples, which is like, well, what's the structure? Like you said, so we're going to meet on this, this format for this long. And this is how it's going to go. That's structure. Mm-hmm. To kind of pull, pull it on, not to put you in a role necessarily, but in a way, like if I started kind of just leaving the structure 
in some way and you put, you were like, no, this is what we're doing here. That would be you. That would be your masculine, like guiding me back into no, actually, this is what happens here. Right. And, um, you know, I could sort of take over. I could be like, um, I think we're, I think we're at five minutes, Nathan, and I'm not sure what we need to be doing next. And you'd be like, I got it. Like I'm, I, I'm holding that part. And actually you just get to, you could say to me, like, you just get to talk, right? You just get to bring like your energy into the space. Yeah. That you're free to express your feminine in yeah. this container. I'll hold the container. And frankly, you are too, right? There's a certain way that I can feel you like you're more, you're more holding the silence. You're more bringing the questions that guide, but there might be moments, you know, where you're also, you're like, oh yeah, that reminds me of my childhood. And so, you know, there's a, there's a way our feminine is, is playing together, but you're still the one who's sort of like, this is the the format and you set it up. And I said, yeah, I'll step into that container. Yeah. And so, and this exists both in each of us. Mm-hmm. and also in, say, a relationship. Mm-hmm. And I would say, so, I mean, you happen to be a man and I happen to be a woman, but to take it out of man-woman, just to give that, it's like, so it was my my relationship, I'm dating man, and it was his birthday. And so I said, so I'm going to pick you up at this time and this is what you need. And then you're going to need this, you know? And so I sort of said, like, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create something for you. Mm. And then you actually get to relax into it. And this is how it's going to go. Perfect. Yeah, those are great examples. And how does it, why should we care? Like, why do I need to know about masculine and feminine? <laughs> That's such a great question. <laughs> like, why does this even matter? Um, well, it doesn't. It matters, right? I believe that it does. And for me, again, a lot of it has to do with teasing apart what they are, not to tell people how they should be. But when we can go, oh, this is what's happening or what's needed now is my masculine or what's needed now is this. Or um, I also believe that these are polarities and there's other polarities we could, we could sort of speak to, but these are polarities. And so especially an intimate relationship, that's where the spark happens. Right. Now, most people don't necessarily want to live in spark all the time. But most people, if they're in intimate relationship or want to be, they want spark a good amount of the time. Right. And knowing how to do that is part of what this actually gives access to. Knowing, especially in that sexual dynamic, although we may switch even in the sexual dynamic, but often there is a little bit more consistency there that one person's like, yeah, I actually want to play this role more often in the bedroom, as it were. And I want to play this role more often. And usually that's kind of what gets drawn together. And then how do we create a life around that so that we are whole human beings, you know, and I, that I would say that's more, say the dynamic between my boyfriend and I in the bedroom, like more often he's in the more masculine role. I'm in the more feminine role, but it really was like beautiful for me to create this thing for his birthday where he just relaxed. And I obviously I go about my life and I do a lot of things. I have a lot of capacity to hold my own life and to set structure for myself. And and then some of that, I mean, we're talking about very physical structure, but some of that is also my energetic, which is like, oh, you know, maybe I have I was I was feeling really emotional earlier. And I would say some of the typical ways that I see people relate to that is like, okay, well, just gotta stuff that down because you got shit to do. So like pretend you don't feel emotional and move on. Or like, oh my God, I have to give the rest of my day. I just have to like clear the books and I have to, you know, weep for hours. Yeah. Tissue box on the bed. Yeah. yeah. I think that's happened in our culture 
kind of on purpose because the squashing was so prevalent that now we have like a whole other culture that's like, you know, just given to it. And now we're in, we're like, ah, and what I found for myself was like, I was like, oh, this feels so tender. And it's not like disassociating inside myself, but there's a part of me that can actually like hold myself. And that's my, that's my masculine. It's almost like literally my masculine is wrapping its arms around my feminine and saying like, okay, so I've totally got you for like five minutes. And then it's okay to still feel tender, but we are going to move on to the next thing. Mm. And, and I just, just I sat in my car. Inside of you. Yeah, I, I sat in my car and I just like really, you know, just really gently, I just let some tears fall and, and I breathed and I was in that space. And then I didn't, it wasn't like some big shift had to happen. It was just like, it was like that part of myself again, sort of said like, okay, so now we're going to move into the next thing. And, and I thought you can actually still feel your tender heart and we're going to move into the next thing. Yeah. Because, you know, we hear these words and I don't even want to say it, but, you know, toxic masculine, mm-hmm. like gets thrown around everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you're probably the best person and you're the only person I have in front of me <laughs> 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 to clear up what that actually means. And, yeah, what does it mean and how do we shift that? Like, what, what are some examples of what that looks like and why would that be unhealthy or why would we want to shift away from that? Absolutely. I mean, the first thing I want to say is like, I believe, so I'm not super big into the word toxic, although I do think that, the, that there are these realms that it exists. But I'll say again, in the framework that John and I use, we, we call our framework, we call it from selfish to sacred. And so right. there's like a selfish or a self-centered masculine and there's a selfish or a self-centered feminine. And then there's this arc. There's all the points in between, but we sort of point to what we call like the selfish or self-centered, the healthy, and then the sacred. And so what and, would example those be? Like yeah. just really. And, and the important thing I want to say about that is actually it's the honoring of all of them that I believe keeps them from becoming toxic. Right. So, so it's, it's not, not right or like wrong. Never having the selfish. It's actually sometimes the trying not to be have the selfish part that starts to create the toxic. Mm. I know self-centered feminine is very much like, look at me and uh, tell me how great I am. And like, like, it's just this very, it's like all about me in a, and kind of the image and like, like, again, even the, the sacred, there is an element of the sacred feminine that shines light in a way that it isn't all about me, but it is very visible in that sense. And so then Mm. the kind of selfish is like, the personal me, I want you to look at me, I want you to see me, I want you to tell me I'm pretty, I want you to like tell me you love me, like give me love and praise and adoration. <laughs> and and sort of gets caught by feeling. Like in a way, I would say that self-set, like the thing we talked about, like the tissues on the bed, like that's sort of a self-centered feminine. Right. Whether it's a man or a woman having that experience, that's just the self-centered feminine. And then the healthy, you know, the movement on the healthy of that would be to say like, wow, I'm really like, I'm feeling really sad and I would love it if you would, um, you know, hold me for a few minutes or like I, you know, sort of is able to express one's feelings and needs mm-hmm. in a cogent way. And then in the, the sacred feminine really is that realm of offering one's love and one's light as a gift to the world. Mm-hmm. It becomes impersonal in a sense, like what would create more love and light in this moment? That's the feminine gift. Yeah. The energy. I mean, it's, it's right. the feminine is the energy in the space. And so it's, it's the, it's whatever, it, you know, how, how are we going to add to the space with our energy basically mm-hmm. rather than detract from it? 
And so I would say the selfish or the self-centered masculine tends to be sort of burdened. Like I have too much to do. Everybody wants something from me. I give and I give and I give and nobody ever appreciates how much I give. Right. Um, and we all know this place in a man or a woman. That's like the sort of like, well, that's everybody like wants other, something. And yeah, that's that? kind of a, there's a disease of Western society right now, isn't it? Just overworked. Yes. And unappreciated. Yes. Um, and then I guess all the addictions and all the numbing that comes with that. Which is, it largely comes from like, I'm so overburdened. Therefore, I, I'm going to check out in this way. Yeah. And man or woman, frankly, I think all of those things come from an, an unwillingness to feel. Like all of us go to Facebook, we go to porn, we go to sugar, we go to whatever. Netflix. I never. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been spying on me? <laughs> Almost always. Yeah. Those are movements like there's something I don't want to feel movement towards the healthy masculine that's really boundaries this is what i can do this is what i cannot do you want this from me but this this works for me or this doesn't work for me and so again we can see all these things are really useful things for both men and women to cultivate yeah the interesting piece is like then the sacred masculine basically creates freedom so the selfish masculine feels overburdened and is like i'll never be free mm. the sacred masculine actually creates freedom as a gift in the world and the sacred masculine, when there's boundaries in place, mm -hmm. what's possible? Um, well, I think it's like it's like a piece of it. They all work together as pieces of the puzzle. And then certainly kind of on, in my framework, that is an essential piece. Like for a man or for a woman, this piece of boundaries is actually often allows for the freedom or it allows yeah. for the offering of love and light in some way, right? Like, oh, I don't, I don't necessarily give my love and light to everybody. And then there's a certain way in which I do. Like, actually, if I've created that internally, I sort of no longer have this space where I'm like, well, you're not safe for me to give my love and light to. I'm just mm -hmm. like, oh, actually, I'm, I'm fine anyway. But these are really natural and normal progressions and not just like a person moves from one side of the spectrum to the other and then lands somewhere. We move through that in our freaking, I mean, within an hour, you yeah. know, certainly within a day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know? <laughs> and how do we, because there'd be a lot of guys that would say, have it confused and say, well, I don't want to become more feminine or I'm sick of women telling me that I need to be more in touch with my emotions or, you know, whatever. What would you say to that man? Well, it's a couple of things. One is I would say that inherently is him in his selfish masculine because he's burdened by her needs. Right. Something else I have to do. And if she would just stop complaining, then I would be free. Mm. And so there's internal work to be done, which is like, where am I free regardless? There's actually nothing she can do that takes away from my freedom. Mm. But this is also where some of that, that, like that healthy work comes in and the acknowledgement of our selfish or self-centered parts, which might be, I mean, it's a little different from what you're saying, but there is that place that's like, Hey, I'd love for you to acknowledge the part. I'd love for you to acknowledge the places where I already do share my feelings. And that's a really healthy way to actually get like, like I need to be praised for what I'm already doing. Yeah. And so much of what you're talking about is uh, that ability to express. Mm-hmm. And being confident enough to express, hey, I need this. Hey, I actually need you to acknowledge this. 
Mm-hmm. I don't want any more of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, when you, you know, when you talk to me, when I, when I walk in the door and the first thing you say is something that's, that you don't like about me, like I, I can't hear anything after that. And there's real practice that comes to like keep our hearts open in the midst of this. Mm-hmm. Cause it's sort of, so there's hard. a place of like, no, this is my boundary. You don't talk to me like that when I come in the door. <laughs> and it's like, okay, it's a step, you know, you yeah. might need to do that. And then you might need to, or like, I can't talk right now. I'll be back in five minutes, you know, or something. And then there's just real work. And I, I really believe this is actually where a lot of that body work comes in because it is energetic, but it is physical. It's literally like, there's literally ways we can relax our heart. And there's mm-hmm. literally practices that we can do that strengthen our nervous system so that not everybody doesn't have to relate to us perfectly for us to be able to bring our love back to them. Mm. And I, and I believe that really there's a certain generosity that we have to offer other people and ourselves because it really does take practice. Well, and that's what I love about your work is that, you know, I think a lot of the times we get stuck in our relationships Mm -hmm. and we can't, we just can't get to these places on our own. Mm -hmm. So what you provide in your work is space where you can come in there and just be uncomfortable in a controlled way. Out of the way and, uh, and start to learn how to do some of these things to grow your relationship. One of the, one of the pieces I hear you talking about is, you know, that the container. So again, it's yeah. like, like creating like, okay, well, this is what's going to happen here and this is how it's going to go. And actually we're going to be in charge. I'm going to be in charge or it's me and John or something, you know, and we're going to just like, and you can trust us. We're going to tell you how it's going to go and we're going to walk you through it. And everybody can kind of let go into that. Like, okay, someone else is going to say how it's going to go here and they're going to stop us if we're like really fucking mm-hmm. it up. And, and then the other part is this interesting. Yeah, right. There's this other piece about one of the things I think happens in long-term relationships, which is like if you and I were in a relationship and there's like something you do and maybe it's, you know, like a, like something in some twitch you have that bothers me, or maybe it's a way of talking, like, but you do it. This is and hypothetical, one of, obviously. This, exactly. There would be nothing that I possibly do to bother you. So. There's not, I mean, just this is so, it's all like, but the moment that I, I'm in relationship with you and you do that thing. One thing that happens is I immediately link it to every other time you've ever done that. And so I'm no longer relating to you in this moment because I'm like Mm -hmm. the million times you've done that before. And I'm, and I, and, and like, it's like this, it's like in a split second, I drag them all into this moment. But the other thing that happens that I think most people don't think about is that I'm also projecting for the rest of my life. And so you do this weird little thing like this and I go, Oh my God. I'm literally going to live with this for the rest of my life and I can't stand it. And so I not only pull from the past, but I pull from the future and I pull like millions of moments, all this moment. And I'm like, Oh my fucking God, I'm going to kill you. You know, (laughs) and I do some stupid thing in response because I can't actually relate to the moment that it's happening. Mm -hmm. Like I've pulled the past and the future into that moment. So interesting. Yeah. Where else can you go from there, but be overwhelmed by it? Yeah. And so like what you said also about being in a controlled environment is like, we get to slow things down in those moments. That's what going to therapy does. That's what a good coach does. That's what coming to like a workshop does. It actually slows it down. So you're like, oh, so what actually happened was he went like this and then like everything linked up, connected to that. But this is what happened. And what happens if that happens and then we both breathe and what happens if, you know, like, what are other ways, like, 
just slowing it down in totally. order to make more choice. Yeah. yeah, and you're away from day-to-day life or kids or work. Or, yeah. 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 I've seen you work with couples where you'll say, you'll get them to say, well, when you said this, this is what I heard. Yeah. And it's very, it's not very often the same thing. Right. Or they're, you know, like I made up because a lot of times also it's like, yeah, it's like, that's well, what you, well, you know, I said something and I, you know, and I could tell that you were really disappointed in me. And then I felt that and we're like, well, so he said this and you made up that he was really disappointed. <laughs> you want to ask? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good. You spend a lot of time with women. So what do you think, what would women like men to know? One of the things I think that women would like men to know is just one of those things where it gets tricky because it's kind of like it's not necessarily men's fault or men's responsibility and it can be helpful just to know this this is the experience is that often women are at some level feel unsafe or even if there's women who wouldn't name it that way if you started to kind of tease it out what they would they're checking how to make themselves safe or they have their eye on the things that might not be safe and again, this is actually this very tricky piece, like teasing out sort of the masculine, feminine, and the man and the woman and, and all these pieces. But I do believe that it would be extraordinary for the men who like can give this as a generous gift to start to find out what that is and be willing to create some of that safety to allow women to start to drop some of the ways that they're always on guard. And I actually think men would benefit deeply from this. <laughs> mm. Because when women are start to relax some of those parts, then what's available for them to bring into the space in terms of their energy and what, what, what's freed up from the relaxation of that, I think is more beauty. Thank you for that. Because I've never felt unsafe in the way that you're describing as a man, right? Mm-hmm. So... And especially as a gay man, I don't even have the context, you know, from a girlfriend or a wife that would share that. Mm-hmm. So w- when you say safety, what do you mean? Like, do you mean? Uh, physical safety. Literally just physical safety. Yeah, which is, it, there's sort of this sense of, for me, I'll just say for me, there's often the sense that it's like, I don't know where this could go. So even if I, it's sort of like, there's something happens, it's quite minor objectively, there's some part of me that's like, yeah, but I don't know where it could go. And it really comes down to kind of a physical level. And is there any part of that that's exciting? Or is that that's a purely scary place to come from or be? I would say in the way that I'm talking about it, it it's not even exactly scary, but it feels contractive. Like there, mm. when I'm when I'm connected to that part, or when I see in women is like a certain part that's like, um, kind of contractive and like, you know, aware. Mm. And that doesn't allow for, again, that relaxation or like what, what could get freed up from that, the light and love, basically. And of course, there's this other realm that also gets very sticky to talk about, but is, is, that is more like the sexual realm. And that's like, oh, when I actually feel safe with you, like when that's sort of handled, that then there can be kind of an exciting realm. Mm. And that is actually one of the things that would get freed up for heterosexual men if they took some of this realm of really taking on the um, creating safety for the women in their lives, because then that actually allows for the relaxation. So it's like, oh, then I might, I could play in that realm with you in a 
like in a consensual in an exciting like in an actual way of playing realm mm, where mm. we're gonna serve each other in some way um, where yeah. it's fun you know where we can get off on it so your invitation to men would be just uh be conscious of that feeling that your woman or woman may feel physically unsafe and make some inquiries about that figure that out be in that be curious well, one, about that. One thing that I, I mean, one thing is you could, there, there, are, there might be conversations to have where you just ask like, like, Hey, what, you know, are there ways you feel unsafe? Not necessarily mm-hmm. with me, but just in general. And then one inquiry would be like, what could I do that would have you feel safer? Mm-hmm. Is there anything I could do that would have you feel safer or more protected? Or, you know, like you can play with that language and see what works for the man, what works for the woman. I mean, I think that, you know, gay couples could do this too. Like in a relationship, that's something you could ask your partner, mm. especially if you are the one who's kind of wanting more of their free expression. What could I do that might help you feel safer right now? Whatever they say, see if you can not be defensive. Like, well, I'm already doing that. Or mm. see if there's any place you can just go like, oh, okay, got it. I could, if, if I did more of that, you would feel safer. Mm. Uh, the other place that comes up for me is just feeling safe in the relationship, that the relationship is solid. Mm-hmm. Because when the relationship is feeling a little bit, uh, is he into me? Is, is this still working? Is it not? Then I can retract. I can feel that retractive feeling as well. Yeah. What do you think on the flip side? Because you spend time with men as well. Mm-hmm. So what do you think women, men would like to tell women? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to say the opposite of the question while looking at the question around the wrong way. Well, it was really beautiful because John and I actually had the, just had the very first call for our eight-month program today oh, that cool. has men and women in it. And one of the things we asked them to do was to share, uh, what do I not trust about the masculine or what do I not trust about the feminine? And something that I heard very strongly from the men was this this piece around how judged and criticized they feel by women. Hmm. And uh, I think there is, I, I think what men would like women to know is, or maybe what I would want women to know about men. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to, how to exactly put this because I'm not a man, but is how often when you think you're sharing your truth, it's actually, it's criticism or it's being yeah. heard as criticism. And this is, I believe this is really different than like tiptoeing around his poor, fragile ego. It's actually looking at like, well, how am I sharing this? And some of that, again, comes from that, like, how relaxed am I when I'm sharing this? Like, how actually open am I? And some of it is, what are actually the words I'm using? And is there any way I can say like, gosh, I'm longing for this? Or, you know, in order to feel more safe, I would need rather than like, why don't you ever blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, I'm just sharing my truth. I'm trying to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So I think men feel very hurt, actually. Hurt. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. Is there anything that if we, you know, anything that we haven't touched on that you would be upset that we didn't share around this? Gosh, I can't think of anything in particular that's there that I'm like, oh, I was really... I mean, I just noticed in that whole piece, I got really curious how all this lives for you as a gay man because we've been talking about it to some extent in the realm of heterosexual relationship even though i think it translates but yeah it's for me it's it feels like uncharted territory so there's a lot of experimentation for me and in my relationships i've you know i've learned a lot and still 
am trying to figure it out and still trying to understand. And that's a question I get from my clients is, am I, am I more masculine or am I feminine guy? Like they've read this way of the superior man or something. And they're like, I can't tell which one I am. I think I'm the middle one or I'm mm-hmm. a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I get that. I get that as well. And I think for me, the polarity still exists. When I talk to other gay men, they don't necessarily agree that there needs to be a polarity mm-hmm. for the relationship to you know, have that sexual spark. I think it does personally mm-hmm. for me. And I'm, versatile I can play either role mm-hmm. and it's it's a different partner for me that can play the different role mm-hmm. but but I definitely know whether I'm in my masculine or feminine and again not effeminate not man or woman but just whether I know that I'm kind of surrendering or leading mm-hmm. I mean I love a bunch of distinctions that you put in there and frankly there's probably not enough time to really go into this but there's I think most people would benefit from practicing out on the poles of both masculine and feminine and would probably find things that they enjoy out on the poles. But in this realm of like, I'm both or I'm, you know, I want to be all of it or we're supposed to be all of it or whatever, like this kind of mind fuck thing that happens. And what happens is actually people end up playing in the middle realm a lot rather than really exploring man or woman way out on the poles of masculine and feminine. And and then that piece that you talked about, which I've also seen in clients of mine who maybe have more fluid sexuality, where like I have a, a female client who dates men and women and really does a little bit more switching of like whether she's in the masculine or the feminine in all of those. Mm. I think we could find actually more pleasure in our lives, not just our sex, but like in our lives when we're willing to hold those extremes. It's, it's, I love it. And it's so interesting how though, that the sex really magnifies it, yeah. you know, so much as, you know, when we were talking about it in terms of masculine and feminine and just in daily life, it's a little bit more hard to define. But when you talk about it in terms of sex, it can become a lot clearer what those poles look like. Yeah. And you, you taught me something, you know, years ago that I still use. And you said it's really about range. For me, I, I've lived a lot of my life strong masculine, you know, pilot, like put on the straight face, uh, not too connected to emotions and, and that kind of thing. I'm generalizing a lot there. So my range, the, the, the range for me to expand was in the feminine. Not mm-hmm. to say that being primarily masculine is bad, but I just there's a range to be explored mm-hmm. over in the feminine. And who knows what you might find. It doesn't mean you have to live there forever. It just means go and expand your range and see what you find. Yes. Yeah. And the very least, I think, we'll gain compassion for other people. <laughs> like uh, sometimes yeah. in our workshops, and you, I think you've probably seen this actually because you've come and supported us, and, but we'll have practices where one partner, the, the room will be split up, men and women, and maybe we'll start with the men holding the masculine part of the practice and the women playing the feminine part, and then we'll have it switch. And, and it kind of blows people's minds, you know, and then frankly, their whole body mind, it kind of, they're like, like this doesn't, you know, does not compute. I don't know why I would do this. And this doesn't, but it really creates actually a lot more fluidity of practice and of expression. And, and then I think also creates compassion for any part of us. that's like, why can't they just do that? Like that part would be easy. Yeah. They don't understand how hard this part is, you know, <laughs> sort of totally, like, totally. <laughs> Yeah. And it's also it's you know, that idea of 
like the the strong CEO corporate type is taboo being uh, dominates. So yeah, dominatrix. Dominatrix. Dominat- yeah. yeah. That same right. idea of like being like in that uh, thing all the time so that you desire just not having to control everything or be in charge or make decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of a funny stereotype. Mm-hmm. But I think there's lots of different versions of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the compassion's a big piece. Uh, I'm going to ask you in a minute about your dark side. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's always the final question and a crowd favorite. But if people want to work with you, there's lots of different ways to work with you, both online and offline, in person. Uh, what are some of the ways that people can work with you and how do they find you? Well, i say the best way to find me is to go to my website, which is kendrakunov.com. And then you can kind of, you know, toodle around and you'll find all those things. The big ones really are like I have a, a, a program for, oh, look, there it is. Um, <laughs> uh, a program for women that's called Fierce Grace that really is about this range, but in a woman's body. And, um, and then at this point, the, the program that John and I teach that's co-ed has already started. So you can find out about that, but it's kind of done, you know, it's full for the year. But we do have live, like in-person intensives throughout the year. We'll have three all there are different places in the United States. And so you can find those under the events. And Yeah, those are incredible. That's a great uh, intro to your work. Thank you. I'll, I'll put it out. There's a few people watching. So if anyone has any questions, while well, we have this incredible woman on the line, just write them in the comment box. But Kendra, what is your dark side? How do you relate to the dark side? Do you have one that you have to watch? Do you have one that you have learned how to embrace? What is it for you? It's kind of all of the above. I mean, frankly, I think like part of my dark side is like when I do ice queen, probably more habitually than I do like volcanic raging bitch. But my, my bitchy, like if I get, if I'm mad and I'll try to contain it. But what I learned over the years was like people could feel it anyway. And so that this thing that I was doing to try to like, like I'll just try to protect everyone from how much rage I feel inside me. And then people were so like, like they were just scared of me all the time. And that it has been, I mean, I both, I still have to watch out for that, like control, basically controlling bitch. Um, <laughs> and also embrace it and be like, there, there are some positive attributes to that. And there's other ways to like express that or to find, you know, when, sometimes I'll just ask people like, oh my God, can I just, can I just vent for a period mm. of time? Or can I just bitch? Like, can I just say what I need to say? You know, and like, rather than trying to control all of that. Yeah, and is it a matter of you've got safe people that are like, yep, if you need to get angry, I'm I'm your person, like go for it. And yeah. is it something that you think, okay, I'm glad to have the ability to release this, but I need to work on it? Yeah, absolutely both. Because it still comes out in like, um, that's just my, it, it really strikes me as, um, I mean, with, it's hard because we can't go into the whole thing, but you know the persona names that we got in 4PC? Right. So mine is Bambi Commando. And, and, and there is a piece that like the Bambi both, like there's some genuinely, there's a lot of genuine sweetness in me, not just like little parts. There's some some, like a lot of that, but there's also like, I can go deer in the headlights really easily. Someone gets mad at me and my, my very initial thing will be like, oh my God, I just freeze. Like, and the commando part is the same. Like I can command a room of hundreds of people, like nobody's business and make them all do what they need to do so that they actually leave more free. And I can get really controlling and domineering about it as well. And 
that's not helpful. And bo- and all of those still come up for me, you know, and they become places to bring awareness to. And Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. And there's probably a lot of women that resonate with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Kendra, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you for who you are for me. You, you've really taught me so much you know, as I've gone on this journey of understanding, you know, how to be a coach, but also around sexuality and exploring the feminine. You're someone that just always meets me right where I need to be met. And uh, there's not many people I can say that about. So thank you very much. I really you. appreciate it. Yeah, it means a lot to me to hear that. And it is really a pleasure to connect with you in this way and have these, like one of the things I love is how the conversation can really go anywhere. And I know it's, it's just going to have interesting twists and turns. Yeah. yeah, it's so fun. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for everyone that's been watching. Thank you for your comments, Julian, Lisa, Laura, Kate, and Gary. And uh, see you guys next week. Thanks, Kendra. Thank you. Well, there you have it, my friends, my conversation with the wonderful Kendra Kunov. I hope you enjoyed it. Check out her website, kendrakunov.com. And you can also find her on Facebook, where she does Facebook Lives every week. And share this episode around. As always, give us a comment, a like, anything you can to show a little bit of love to the show. And I will love you forever. Thanks, guys. Have an incredible week. Bring more love to the world. And I'll see you next week for episode 56 of The Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. This episode has been brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They have incredible retreats all around the world, Portugal, Bali, Colombia, Nicaragua, just to name a few. I did Medellin in Colombia last year, blew my mind. A great bunch of people there, lots of really cool local experiences, beautiful office to work from, a lovely apartment. They organize it all, guys. So go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and I'm going to get $100 off your first trip. So do yourself a favor, check out beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and prepare for one of the best months of your life.